Welcome back to Fantastic Voyage, the David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. You can find us on Twitter at Bowie Podcast, and we ask you to leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts if that is where you cast your pods. We've reached the end of an era in Bowie's career, and the end of what we're kind of calling unofficially season two of our show. Uh, This is the end of the Spiders era, and we're going to summarize it with a 20-song playlist that we have dubbed the Best of the Spiders. It was not easy narrowing it down. Uh, there's a lot left off that, yeah. we, that we still love, but it's, it's almost like playing Sophie's Choice with these songs, right? <laughs> like it's it, it was not easy narrowing these 20 songs down, but we did what we think is our best. We hope you like it, and it, it was it's uh, I think it's going to be a fun episode. It was surprisingly quick how it happened though i i i texted you my 20 and you just said yep that's it kind of yeah because i i think i had already started a rough draft of a 20 and it was like 18 of the 20 songs or something were like the same right so it yeah. was like uh pr- it pretty much was just maybe we swapped one out or something but we were surprisingly on the like pretty much the exact same page with at least the the bulk of these yeah and i think where the pain comes in is looking at it after the fact and going like we could make another playlist of the next 20 and it would kind of rival the best of the 60s playlist wouldn't it yeah we could probably make a 14 track playlist that would be just as good if not oh no it'd be better than the best of the 60s one and and we're not yeah we're we're not trying to keep each playlist to be like on level like this one is going to be better than the last playlist in terms of quality of music i still think bowie's 60s catalog is highly overlooked very underrated bowie diehards mostly appreciate it but a lot of people do overlook it and and that playlist was great it it was fun i thought it was it was really good stuff but i mean bowie's entering what you could argue is his prime at this point and it's just the the material's a bit better he's more mature and advanced of a songwriter and it, it shows in a lot of these songs it shows and we've there's more songs on this one than there was on our last playlist and they're like you said the ones that we left off are probably better than a lot of the ones <laughs> that made it on the 60s one but. yeah not not a slight on the 60s stuff though there's a lot of mm-hmm. stuff we left off of the 60s one that good, Signet good stuff was too. the big one yeah well uh, there's snubbed. yeah i mean there's there's a lot of good stuff from that era uh, but yeah, so we we tried to keep it as small as possible. So we only added six more songs to cover this pretty prolific period, but not very long period. This is only this is covering from 1970 to the end of 1973. So it's really only like a four year period, kind of mm-hmm. that we're that we're covering. The, the 60s period was technically longer because Liza Jane is right. That's right. Four, four or five. Yeah. I know. I think it's four. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so should we get into the number one of 20? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Kicking off our Best of the Spiders playlist is Ziggy Stardust. Kind of like the Spiders anthem, right? Very recognizable opening lick, so why not choose it as the opening song? You know, you kind of know what you're getting into when you hear those, those opening notes from Ronson. Yeah, it's... We talked about it being... There's a lot of songs that we've said oh this is like his signature guitar riff and yeah this was one of the ones we said that about one thing i believe we neglected on our ziggy album episode that i wanted to give a bit of a backstory on is how david got the name ziggy stardust because i think it's very interesting 
So Ziggy was lifted from a tailor shop, just a shop in London called Ziggy's. Maybe Iggy was on his mind as well. I've seen that talked about before. I'm not sure, but... He kind of dismissed it even a little bit. He's a character like him, but it, it wasn't Iggy Pop. Seems like a coincidence. Yeah. And maybe he went, oh, Ziggy, Iggy, cool, but... Cool, yeah. It came from the London shop. But what's most interesting is where he got Stardust. That was lifted from the legendary Stardust Cowboy, which was the stage name for Norman Carl Odom. I guess when Bowie was signed to Mercury, they gave him copies of the legendary Stardust Cowboy's 45s, and David absolutely loved them. They were these very bizarre science fiction songs. We'll play a clip here from one called Paralyzed. It's very manic and very off the wall. It might be where he got the idea to do that sarcastic yodeling on Eight Line Poem. Uh, Who knows? But another one of the singles Bowie was given was this song called I Took a Trip on a Gemini Spaceship. You probably will recognize that from the album Heathen. And that's kind of a funny story, too, because I believe legendary stardust Cowboy was kind of pissed off. Maybe not pissed off, but he was like, you know, Bowie took my name. You you think he could have given me some money after all those years? So by putting it on Heathen, that song, it kind of you got a nice little royalty check, right? Yeah. I think Bowie put him on on the bill for some festival he was running to around the the Heathen era. So okay. He, he wound up paying his due, which is which is kind of nice. Did he maybe play Glastonbury right right before Heathen came out, or around because that was two thousand? That might have been it. Okay. I, I can't remember yeah. the festival, but really cool cool artist, legendary Stardust Cowboy. I mean, Bowie was always into outsider artists. You, you look at a lot of his influences, and it's this very atypical group of people, like the legendary Stardust Cowboy, or Jacques Brel, Biff Rose, Vince Taylor, the list goes on. And so it's it's very interesting to go down rabbit holes and explore his obscure interests. I know you like to do it with his books, uh, I like to do it with his music, you probably do it with his music as well, but yeah. you can go down these really interesting rabbit holes, because he was into some really interesting people. Yeah, it's like, what happens if a Little Richard fan starts to listen to this kind of stuff it's like you you add it to rock music and it's that's how that's kind of the formula that you know we i often ask myself how did hell did he do all this how did he bring this eclectic group of flavors to rock and roll music and it's just that it's these Mm -hmm. outsider artists that he brought into rock and roll music and yeah here we are talking about him these songs are now gosh all they're all almost 50 years old Mm mm-hmm As it does on the album, we're going to segue into the second song, Suffragette City. A lot of compilations kind of do this, too. I remember the Changes One Bowie I had as a kid growing up. That's that black and white cover, the red text. I didn't know we had one of those kicking around the house. It's funny because I didn't listen to it, really. It's one of those weird things where I think the the sleeve went missing, but the 
Mm. If the record itself was always kicking around. Yeah, Dad was famous for that. <laughs> well, it's not like a lot of the old generation didn't really take care of their record. No. They would just drop the record right into the sleeve. It would break the spine, the, the spines, and the s- seams were all split. The covers were, were chewed up. We had a lot of records growing up, like, you know, the, the white pressing of the Beatles' white album and all these rare things that, like, they would have been worth hundreds of dollars had they just been taken care of. Yeah. but And that's why you always think, like, well, why are those, those Beatles albums sold millions of copies and the Bowie one sold millions of copies. How come, you know, it, it's so hard to get an original People pressing? were playing them and beating them to shit. Because yeah. nobody really kept good care of them. There's like 10 of them that are in mint condition left in the world because everybody just destroyed them all. Yeah. So keep good care of your records. It might be worth something one day. It's true, especially as you're buying new records now because they're original pressings. And yeah. 50 years from now, when you buy a brand new record and it's an original pressing, I, I don't know if they're going to be repressing an album that was released in 2021. 40 years from now so yeah it might be hard to get your hands on that's another reason why i buy records now like current records that i like you never know when there's going to be a repress or a remaster mm-hmm. it may never come anyway back to suffragette city great song great way to now this is where i was thinking uh, i said to you before the show that there's something i like about this uh the sequencing on this playlist i would imagine if this was starting off a concert of this era, this is if he did Ziggy Stardust and then Suffragette City, like bang, bang, like think of the high you would be on. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, he did one of my favorites and then he did another one of my favorites and they're both, it just got, it went from rock to like higher octane rock and it's a great way to, I think, to start a playlist off. Yeah, I think this is the the best rocker from the Ziggy record. Like, I love Star and I love Hang On To Yourself. Yeah. But this one is looked at as the classic of all those rockers, and I think for good reason. It's the most charismatic. It's got a lot of character. It's filled with great slang and personality. You know, there's great catchphrases and quotables, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, and all that. Uh, I think not including it would be blasphemous. So this was was a pretty obvious choice, uh, definitely for me and probably for you as well. Love the synthesized uh, horns, too, at the end. It, it it gives it it makes it bigger, kind of that some of the other rock songs don't have. Yep, I I would agree. This is my favorite rocker from from the Ziggy album. Maybe not from this era. There's one that would be neck and neck with it, but we'll have to wait till we get to that one. So a change of pace for number three. Uh, number three is Aladdin Sane. The title track from. Well, Aladdin Sane. <laughs> I mean, not. I mean, we covered this at length recently on the Aladdin Sane side A episode. But I mean, Garson is arguably Bowie's greatest and most important collaborator, and this is Garson's greatest performance. Would you agree? Close. I I I think it's his second greatest. So on the on the album, even like there's there's some more later on that I really like. Jeez, now that I'm on the spot, I'm going to say it's my second favorite, but it's probably like trying to put the objective lens on. I mean, yeah, it's probably the most important. So even if it's like the second best, it's Bowie's arguably greatest and most important collaborator, and it's arguably his greatest performance. I think that alone is grounds for it being on uh, the best of from this era playlist. Yeah. And it's covering another base too. Like this is a, this is a genre song that you don't get anywhere else. It's a lot different from the previous song, which I kind of <laughs> like, you know, it 
bit of a curveball yeah. in terms of the sequencing, and I, I loved that about putting this after Suffrage at City. Yeah, that's cool. Another bit of a curveball for our next song. Yeah, this might be our most out of left field one. Maybe not for the for Bowie fans anyway. Uh, but number four is from the man who sold the world. After all, I just couldn't leave this off. There, I I thought about it, thinking like, okay, like if I if we were, remember we were saying, can we cut one, and what one would we cut, and this was not in consideration. There were some bigger songs that I, I would have cut before this one. Songs from this album too, that I would have, this from the man who sold the world. I would have cut other ones from this album even before. Yeah. This, I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, a lot of these picks, especially since they're coming from a very iconic era of Bowie's, they're going to be quite obvious. Like I would argue the last three are borderline inevitable inclusions or at the very least, they're fairly obvious choices. But with a song like After All, we're sort of planting our flag. Yeah, I would say that's fair. I think I think After All is just... It's one of those songs that you wish everybody knew because you love it so much. And it's not one that you can really play for somebody and be like, oh, like, here, like, listen to it on my iPhone. You know, like, mm-hmm. you gotta be, like, in the mood and you gotta be... You, you gotta be you know, open-minded to I think maybe like yeah. get into a song like this. But I, I think the majority of our listeners are, you know, huge fans of this song too. So I don't think we're going to take any heat for no, putting this on over some of the other ones. When we did the Man Who Sold the World episode, and we asked everyone to kind of talk about, you know, their favorite songs and stories and whatnot from the album. This was a popular choice for everyone's yeah. favorite song. It got mentioned by a lot of people. That was one of the happiest moments, I think, of of doing this show for me because I'm not on social media aside from the fantastic voyage, uh, Twitter. And so I don't really have a gauge as to where, you know, Bowie fandom is at, or, you know, so to hear, or I don't have much engagement with the Bowie, you know, community. So to hear people saying, I like, after all, it was like, it felt good. It was soothing. It's like, Oh, there are people out there that like what I like. that's kind of cool. This one represents Bowie's increasing fascination with like Nietzsche and yeah. and also those Buddhist concepts like rebirth and Aleister Crowley's concept of true will. And it, it all blends together for this great, weird, eerie song that sounds like it should be played in like a, a child's nightmare as the bad guy is chasing them oh, around. It's a Nightmare car- on Elm Street. Yeah, something. totally. Yeah, yeah Freddy Krueger is uh, the one tripping them with his razor claw hand. Yeah, it's, it's a very dark song from a very dark album. Visconti recently shared a picture on Facebook of what the the wine cellar looked like. Where yeah, they that was so cool to see that. It's like we conjured that image out of him. Yeah. We were just talking about that, and then like a week or two later, you found it, or he posted it. He just it. happened to post it. We were talking about, I wonder what, like, uh, I wonder what it, it looked like in that. You know, more pic- We all have seen pictures of the outside of Haddon Hall, but we haven't seen the inside. And, I mean, let's just put it this way. After you see the picture of the wine cellar, you can scroll through our Twitter feed. We've, we posted it a month or so ago. You can tell why this album sounded so dark because that room is just this very dark, navy, blue, creepy, dark-looking wine cellar. It was ex- exactly kind of what I'd imagined. Yeah, I guess. it's it's funny how when you imagine something, but and then you see it, you're kind of like it's confirming, but at the same time, you kind of wish it was more. Almost, I don't know. When I saw it afterwards, like, oh, cool, like that's what it looks like, and it's like, oh yeah, I kind of knew that without knowing that yeah. for sure. All right. Number five is Moon Age Daydream 
no uh that's a that's a cold take <laughs> moon age yeah, daydream I mean, it's <laughs> Another one of the more obvious choices, the back cover on the Ziggy record instructs you to play the album loud. Now, this is without a doubt one of the ones they had in mind specifically. It kicks ass. I love it coming after After All, which was more quiet and somber. This is just a total glam freakout. It's the total package. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah, if you turned the playlist up a little bit to catch what's going on in the end of After All, you might want to quickly turn it down before this one starts. It starts quick. And it kind of starts quick. It does that on the album too. It, yeah. Soul love hasn't finished fading out. And they're just like, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's great editing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, up there for one of the best guitar solos for sure. Uh, one of the best guitar tracks, one of the best tracks period. Yeah. Number six is life on Mars. Every time I write this down, it looks like life on Mars. Like, am I going to include this one too? It's funny because I always, <laughs> but it's... I'm, I kind of feel like a snob. I always type it out with the question mark, but I never refer to it vocally as life on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, oh, you have to write the, the question mark, but then you never say it like a question. You always just say it's life on Mars. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or I just usually call it Mars kind of, but yeah. Mars? You start saying it like that. I, know. I, just, uh, I just started a new job. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, or I just transferred to a to a new school, and I'm reading, or I'm in a elementary school now with it's like kindergarten to grade five, and the first book that I read to all the classes was a book called Life on Mars, and it was really cool. Oh, I, no I I tried to like incorporate Bowie into it a little bit, but I mean <laughs> as much as you can with like seven to or well five to you know ten year olds, but yeah. Anyway, that's kind of my Life on Mars story for the week. It doesn't matter how many times I've listened to this song, it still sends shivers down my spine. It's a mm. very ambiguous song. It's very beautiful. The course is just this explosion of emotion. When you're talking about like the, the perfectly crafted songs and just extraordinary examples of songwriting, Life on Mars instantly comes to mind. I mean, with, with its unconventional chord structures and the, the gorgeous course... This very well might be my favorite song of the bunch. I don't know that for sure, but the top of my head, this might be the one that I just think of first as the best one. Yeah, that wouldn't be... Wouldn't be controversial. No, it's yeah. it's it's one of them for me. Uh, I don't think it's number one, but it's damn close. Like, that, that would be tough. That's like mm -hmm. picking... Well, the next song would be neck and neck with it, I think. Um, and that next song is Quicksand kind of like an extension of life on mars almost because they both take place in the silver screen yeah there's different movies though yeah the last one was a lot more promising this one's a lot more surreal and complicated a bit darker yeah quicksand is one of the ones for me anyway where we, we've talked about how i mean not that we don't appreciate the other side of it but I'm very music driven. You're more vocal or uh, not vocals. You're more lyric. lyric driven. And I mean, and like I said, it's not like you just read them as poetry or that I listen to the, you know, isolated <laughs> instrument. The... <laughs> yeah. But when, when lyrics really hit me deep, it just puts all like the great music song of, of a song. It just puts it over the, the top for mm -hmm. me. And, and that's kind of where quicksand sits in my rankings is like, Oh, this is, one of my favorite songs of his and the lyrics hit me. And that's why I've always regarded it as, you know, a top 
a top five Bowie song. Like, overall, like, not just including this era. I Ain't Got the Power Anymore is one of the more special lines that he's... Yeah. Or refrains, or whatever you want to call it, that he's come up with. Yeah, it, it that's that's it. That's just yeah. it. Especially that one, you know, the third time through, where he's... Yeah, he's... Anguish. Yeah. It just sounds, yeah. It, it's... He's conceding to the quicksand. The, you know, the metaphoric quicksand of, you know, his... OCD brain or whatever you want to call it. It's a complicated song. We did yeah. talk about it more at length in the Hunky Dory side A, if you wanted to check that out. But yeah, this was another one of the more obvious ones for me that this this had to be on. No question. Yeah. We also had to include at least one from Pinups to give it some representation. Uh, and so this next one was an easy choice. Yeah. Sorrow. Yeah, when we that was the first thing we did when we started this process we said okay i guess we got to pick one from pinups just to represent the album and i might have actually picked it anyway to be honest but yeah yeah i think i would have too uh but yeah your your reply was something like as as long as it's sorrow then yes i said yeah okay then yeah that was quick yeah and we both agreed it was the the best song on the record we did a poll for who did the better version of the song, the Bowie pinups version or the original. And the listeners gave the original version zero votes, (laughs) which I think is a a testament to just how great this version is because the version Bowie's covering by the Mercies is still, it's very, very good. And yet it's still quite clearly the inferior version to to this one. I've never seen a Twitter poll with... Uh, like a hundred percent before that, that might be the, the first time it's ever happened. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, a great time for it to happen because this is a great version and we just gushed over it on our pinups would have been side B episode. Yeah. Last episode we did the one that I thought right after you talked about saying, Oh, I, I always thought that sorrow kicks off side B. I said, Oh no, it's Friday on my mind. And then we started that episode off with, Okay, the best on the album. It's Sorrow. That threw me off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going, wait, what? Friday on my mind's the best song. Okay, well, and you know, Sorrow just—it sounds like a side opener. Mm-hmm. Just that intro. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the start of a side. Totally. I, I there's there's got to be a reason why we both made that same mistake. If anyone else has thought that too, let us know. Yeah, it would be interesting to know yeah. if we're not if we're not the only ones. Speaking of ones where you, I always write down the proper uh, punctuation. Oh, you pretty things is number oh, nine. Explanation mark. You yeah. pretty things. Yep, this is just one of those you know, solid songs, meat and potatoes kind of thing. The the human race is becoming obsolete, and an alliance between an alien species and the youth is taking place. I love how that's like the meat and potatoes of Bowie's career. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just it's a great concept, great piece of songwriting. This is sort of Bowie's switch from like acoustic folky balladeer to the more piano driven stuff and it's fantastic yeah i love the simplicity of it it's the one that he plays piano on instead of rick wakeman it could have been prettied up similar to uh, life on mars or you know any of those songs that rick played on but he kept it simple because it warranted it and yeah the lyrics are definitely or the vocal is definitely in you know the kind of the driving force behind this Mm -hmm. one great song Peter Noon probably had no idea what the hell he was talking about when he covered it, which is beautiful in its own way. Yes. (laughs) 
All right, so on to one that, no, we didn't forget, and we didn't leave, or we didn't start the playlist off with it. We could have, but uh, uh, number 10 is Five Years. Yeah, this is a song that, I mean, we obviously talked about it at length on Ziggy Stardust Side A. Like, uh, there's too much to talk about, so we'll probably keep this short, but I mean, it's it's a song that's heartbreaking and simultaneously beautiful and romantic david's the guy to pull that sort of thing off you know a song with a million different emotions getting thrown to you at once and it's almost overwhelming but not in a bad way it's a great song i said life on mars was maybe my favorite on the playlist now i'm (laughs) having second thoughts because you know this song exists as well i was trying to think of the first time i heard this song and i can't remember it because we had been listening to this album since before we could even remember so it's kind of just it's just it's something that i it's i've always known this song and i and that's kind of neat in its own way like i was kind of like i found that interesting that i couldn't remember like i i know when i've discovered most of the songs that i like today when you hear about the best song of all time to according to somebody the most important song of their life they always talk about oh i can never forget the first time i heard it yeah a lot of these ones we were kind of robbed of that because we'd already known them since we were like three four years old yeah. and we just kind of it's like knowing your colors you remember where you were when you learned what blue looked like <laughs> no you remember where you were when you first heard five years no i just always knew it right of. yeah yeah i wouldn't want it any other way though i mean if you're gonna you know growing up with Bowie your whole life is it could be worse yeah okay so on to another favorite of mine uh, this was in the top half of this list anyway for me the top quarter maybe uh, all the Mad Men uh, that, that would be my favorite track from the man who sold the world I think quite comfortably well, this one is great for the simple fact that it flips the script on who's sane and who isn't I've always loved the concept yeah. that the insane ones are actually the most sane among us because I mean, you always hear about how you know the world's gone mad and it's all gone to shit and the nation's divided and so on and so forth. So aren't the insane ones the most sane then for creating a greater alternate reality and living in that one rather than this one? It's just a beautiful concept. Yeah. It seems like forever ago that we talked about that song and on that album. And when you think about how much we've covered since then... It's crazy to think that not only like did does it seem like just yesterday that we covered this, but like he was actually conceiving these ideas and these albums in such a short period of time too. And while some of the themes kind of spill over, it's just yeah, that's this is definitely I think the coolest way of attacking that and challenging that that he ever did. Uh, yeah, it's obviously a subject that he was very passionate about because this is uh, this album, Man Who Sold the World specifically, is the one yeah. where he's really focused on his half brother Terry, yeah, and you know the demons that he had, and he was schizophrenic and all that. So obviously, Bowie's very passionate about this subject, and I think when he's passionate about something, very seldom does he drop the ball, and he certainly doesn't. Yeah, on this song, and he doesn't on really that entire record either. It's a really underrated one. I think in Bowie's catalog, you can probably look at that as like the first great one. Yeah. The first, I don't know if you want to call it masterpiece, but the first really full solid body of work that he did where it's kind of like you're entering the golden era, You're entering the prime of his right. career with that record. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes hunky dory is kind of considered that. Yeah. But, and it is the better one. Yeah. I think, but, it, yeah, it is. But yeah, you're right. It, this, it doesn't, it's like you shouldn't compare it to hunky dory. It's not fair to the man who sold the world yeah. as, its own thing as being a solid 
straight through. Yeah, great idea, great execution. There's like a th- a threshold of albums I think in Bowie's catalog where if somebody said it was their favorite, y- you wouldn't look at them as like they're oh they're being they're just saying that to try to be cool. They're just saying that to try to be contrarian or like, yeah. This think, makes it. Yeah, this I makes think if the somebody cut. says this is their favorite, I'd be like, oh, I totally see why this would well, be someone's favorite. I, I would put it in my own rankings. I would put it ahead of Let's Dance, and oh, I hear yeah. and not I even, not even close. And, and Let's yeah. Dance is considered a lot of people's favorite albums. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, based on the, the you know the top end of that album is puts out some really great songs. So I think this one is just fleshed out a little bit better, and totally is a better album from start to finish. All and, the songs kind of have a, a common thread between them, and it's just yeah. darkness. <laughs> yeah, and, and and the top end songs in this one are, are great in in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like this and after all are similar, but then they also don't sound anything like right. each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Number 12 is Time. Now, here's one that is why I couldn't just say Life on Mars is, you know, my favorite on this playlist. Because I I think I like Time a little bit more. A little bit. It's close. This is, yeah, this is one of my favorites of all time. Has to be on the playlist, that's for sure. (laughs) Yo, totally. Great uh, great New Orleans-influenced track. Yeah. Is outlined on the back cover of Aladdin Sane. Kind of similar to, like, Live and Let Die, almost, in a way. Mm -hmm. It's, like, very suspenseful and anxious. And I think that's kind of interesting. And a big explosion, kind of. Yeah. And, like, you know, Grinning Soul is always quoted as being, like, well, that's Bowie's long-lost Bond theme song. And it, it's very, it's similar to Time, the song Time. And Time is kind of similar to Live and Let Die, which was a Bond theme. So yeah, kind of funny how those connections work. Well, this could have been like the, uh, this could have been like the accompanying song in that Bond movie. You know how like there's more than one song in the movie. Oh yeah, this there's could a whole have... George Martin, I think, produced soundtrack for that one. Right, yeah. Yeah, this would have been included in it. Yeah, that's cool. They, yeah, they're going back and forth between London and New Orleans and... Well, and, and Bond's lover in the film, could Lady Grin and Soul could have been a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, throwing a yeah, <laughs> throwing the Velvet Underground track in a bar somewhere. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, time is got my favorite Mick Ronson moment on it. Some of my favorite Garson moments on it. Some of my favorite Bowie moments on it. And a song that's just. It just the, the the concept of it rings true. You know, it's almost like time is mocking you. That's something that I feel all the time. You know, your mortality is inevitable. And it's funny because it sounds very cynical and very disturbing, but at the same time, they almost put this humorous spin on it. You kind of have to have a sense of humor about your inevitable death, I find. It helps keep you sane almost. Yeah. This song, I think, does a great job of kind of encapsulating all those feelings I have about not even just dying, but even just like your deadlines that you have to meet and how you're, you're stressed out and you don't have time. Is time is always mocking us. It, it is. Yeah. And <laughs> it sounds so cliche, but like... Things what, become cliche for a reason. They do, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, number 13 is Cracked Actor. Another, this is the one that I thought, it's this or Suffragette City for my favorite, you know, rocker songs on, on the playlist. Mm-hmm. This one's, yeah, got to make it for me. Yeah, this is like the the loudest and the dirtiest and the raunchiest glam rocker of, of all the ones that he kind of did, well, I guess not only just in this period, but probably in his career. Not only do I think this is a great track just on its own, but as it pertains to this playlist, 
I feel like it's kind of needed because a lot of his great epics from this period are slow burners or mid-tempo numbers. So it's nice to have an ass kicker in the mix. Yeah. I think this was this was kind of needed. Well, and he tackles the subject of, you know, a washed up actor and, and everything that happens in it in such a short period of time. Yeah, he jams it into two verses, really, and a, and a chorus. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, the story starts and finishes in like a matter of two minutes or whatever. It's always been one of my favorites for, I, I mentioned it on the Aladdin Sane episode. I, I love the, I love LA depicting LA or Hollywood depicting Hollywood. And this is the music version of it. If, you know, if Sunset Boulevard and Graveyard for Lunatics are the movie and, or Ed Wood is, is one of my favorites. If those are the, those, you know, mediums or those formats versions of it, this is my favorite music version of that. Mm-hmm. Hard to it's hard to spit that out. It's hard it's hard to really explain that, but yeah, I, I love Hollywood depicting Hollywood, and this is Bowie spending time in L.A. and being like, "Oh, this is what I took from it." We probably mentioned it before too, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Tarantino movie that just came out recently, a few years couple ago. years ago, yeah, great great depiction of Hollywood. Love that movie so much. Yeah, Sarah, my wife, just bought uh, the book. They the, Tarantino novelized it. Oh. Yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah, I'm I'm going to read that when she's done. That sounds like a lot of fun. I love when they do that, when they novelize a movie. Not the other way. It's usually the other way around. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I know they did that with Halloween. I'd like to read that, too, but you can't, like, it's, you got to spend, like, hundreds of dollars on, to get, like, a chewed-up copy. No thanks. Yeah, just... Curious, but not that re- curious. Reprint it already. You'd make money. Yeah, it's not like it's a... <laughs> Take my money. Obscure thing. It's Halloween. Everyone knows Michael Myers. Everyone knows the theme song. Yeah. Everyone knows... I just watched the 12th installment of it last weekend. <laughs> like, it's it, it's still... It's still popular. Yeah, I uh, I saw a commercial for that recently, and I, I'm sure the movie's fine, but I, I had to kind of laugh. It was just like... It, it, the commercial came on, and it was like... They're trying to kill... They're still trying to kill Michael Myers, eh? They still haven't... <laughs> That's still yeah. a thing. Yeah. Halloween 83 yeah. comes out of the grave again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure what, you know, obviously it's not a real life scenario. You have to enjoy the movie for what it is. I'm sure it's a, yeah. well, actually I'm not sure if it's fine or not. Cause there's been some horrible movies from that series. It's but. for fans of the series. That's for, or of the franchise. That's for sure. If, if you're still clinging on at this point, they could put out some shitty low budget, you know, piece of junk and people would still rewatch it for like we do decades to come. Bowie yeah. bootlegs and yeah, exactly. Life. Yeah. Okay. So on to a kind of on the subject song, a freaky song. Yeah. Uh, number 14 is the Bule brothers. Yeah. Well, I mean, we just talked about how most of the, most of his best songs from this period tend to be kind of like the slow burners. This is certainly one of them. I think this song perfectly captures like the essence of like longing and I suppose it's sort of from the school of Ray Davies because to me it represents a yearning desire for a past that may or may not have existed. The imagery is very abstract. You're not quite sure how to feel about what he's portraying, and I believe that's intentional. And it's also very captivating. I think this is a great song for like the end of the night when you've had a few drinks and the song will just suck you into a very peculiar mood. Yeah, it's kind of for listening to on your own isn't it yeah it's a yeah it's a it's a somber song yeah there's there's so much i i I don't even think i want to open up the can of worms as to why i like this one we we covered it you know in depth yeah so we'll move it along okay yeah what's our next one here width of a circle yeah 
Width of a Circle. Uh, this is, yeah, the, we talked about how The Man Who Sold the World had, the, you know, similar themes and some crazy themes, especially the second half of this one. But it just sounds totally different. Now, this one's totally different from, you know, After All and All the Bad Men. <laughs> It's the first track uh, from this period, from the best of That's the... That's right. Yeah, at at least as far as album track listings are concerned. Uh, yeah, right. You know, Memory of a Free Festival, the last track on Space Oddity, was essentially closing a chapter, right, signaling the end of the 60s. So Width of a Circle, I think, is a great way to open this new chapter. It's an entirely new direction that Bowie was headed down. And really was, I think, the perfect opener for The Man Who Sold the World. It has a lot of new and exciting ideas to offer, and glad that it was able to find its way on this on this list. Yeah, it was. this was a must-include for me. Uh, it, and it, this was like the, you know, enter a new Bowie. Because when you listen to the first two albums, you're going, okay, I, I kind of, I, I might be able to figure this guy out. And then you hear this, and it's like, oh, it's like Zeppelin Three. And it's you know it's a blues song, and it's it's rock and roll all of a sudden. It's just it it's it's a different step in a different direction. He took all kinds of weird steps yeah. in terms of where his career was headed. Because I think we might have talked about this on an earlier episode. But if you were if you kind of didn't know the years his albums came out, and then you were tasked with trying to place them in order, it yeah. would not be easy. <laughs> yeah, this. <laughs> yeah, especially because Hunky Dory comes next. Yeah, it's like, like, where the fuck did this come? Where did that come? He went yeah. from folk balladeer to he was in Cream, and then he's uh, Elton John, and then he's uh, Ziggy Stardust. Like, what, what is what yeah. he doing? Yeah, like we like Aladdin Sane, and then pin, like yeah, pinups is kind of in the way of Aladdin Sane progressing to Diamond Dogs too, and that may, maybe in a less uh, intense kind of way, but. Yeah. Yeah, this one is it's a sore thumb, and and it is. But I mean, yeah, it's it's a solid, it's a amazing album. Great way to start the album, and would have been kind of neat to put this at the beginning of the playlist for, like you said, because I think did we end the best of the '60s with uh, Mary Free yeah? So this yeah. would have been kind of neat to start the '70s with it, but no, Ziggy's a little bit better way to start it. I think yeah, a little bit of a better song too, close, but. Okay, so next is uh, the title track from that album, The Man Who Sold the World. Now, the best explanation of this song I've ever heard came from our most recent guest, Michael Fremer. He said something like, I, I love that song so much. I have no idea what it's about, but I love it. <laughs> and that's really the beauty yeah. of The Man Who Sold the World, isn't it? It's very ominous and mysterious. Uh, the backing vocals, I think, are even very mysterious. They sound almost like a a cult or some sort of creepy choir. That phaser effect on Bowie's voice is brilliant. Yeah. The vibe of the song is just that it, that it's mysterious. So I think that if the song made sense to me, then in a roundabout way, it wouldn't make sense. If that makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, uh, yeah, I, I may have lost you a little bit there, but I think that's the point. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not supposed to make sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just such a good song. I, I Those haunting backing vocals at the end during the you know the, it's not a fado but during the outro or just mm-hmm. oh you put that on in a fall evening and it's just oh it's such a mood piece yeah that's what you're supposed to put on a song where i mean it's essentially about he's meeting his doppelganger and he's not sure if it's from a past life is it from the future is it you know it's it's a horror, don't know. it's a yeah. horror movie in a 
three and a half minute song or however long it is. I don't know. You're confused and scared. And to make matters worse, you've got that in the background. Yeah. Those, those voices. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Number 17. We've got four songs left. So as you're, if you're following along uh, at home, you might be going, Oh, we're running out of room to get your favorite on. And we've only got four more. Uh, One of those is Lady Grinning Soul. I mentioned that I had another Garson favorite that might be just a little bit over uh, Aladdin Sane. And and this is it. This is my favorite Garson track. I I love, yeah, the the arpeggios he plays during the the verses. So good. The... Oh, it's just everything about this one. It just sounds like it's just sweeping over top of the the music, and it's so it's such an ambient piece of uh, of jazzy rock. Like I don't know where else you find this. It's just you only find it on this song. Yeah, it's just it's Garson. Yeah, well, I'd mentioned that Aladdin Sane was maybe my favorite moment. It still is, but this is probably number two for me in terms of Garson's contributions. Those arpeggios, oh, they're just. I, I can't rave enough about his playing on this song. The flamenco guitar by Ronson at the end is a yeah. great touch. Bowie, as usual, puts on a great vocal performance. The three of them shine on this song yeah. arguably better than they, they do anywhere else. It's a, it's a great mix of, of those three. Also a very underrated outro guitar solo. It's kind of buried. It's not super prominent like say Moon Age Daydream for example, but it's a different type of song. So it's it's yeah. buried and I'm kind of glad it's buried cuz it makes you really listen for it. Uh but oh man, he's just like Ronson is just howling at the end of this one and it's so good and, and it adds to that ambience that that Garson's doing and yeah, one of my favorite my favorite songs. Top half for sure yeah. for me. Yeah. In terms of this uh this list, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Number 18 is our only non-album track. The only one we haven't already discussed at length. Yeah, and that one is All the Young Dudes, the Spiders version. We could have put, I guess, the Mop the Hoople version on. He does play guitar and sing on it. He produced it, I think, It is too. the better version, I think, but... Yeah, it is, yeah. yeah. This, this one is, it's pretty good, and I've always thought that... Ronson saves the day on this one because the vocal is a bit less inspired than when Ian Hunter's doing it. It's a little more restrained. Yeah, uh, it's it's slowed down. Uh, it's in C. They drop it a key, and it's yeah, it's it's yeah. You're right. It maybe not. It's not the d- definitive version. Um, I can see why it was scrapped. I think it was scrapped because John, I'm only dancing was already slated to be put out as a single and he had another album coming out. This was done between Ziggy and Aladdin Sane. And he gave it to them as they were about to break up. At first he offered them Suffragette City. They said no. And then they were going to break up and he went, well, no, no, here, I'll save the band. I'll give you all the young dudes. And they were shocked that he gave them a song this strong. I think one of them said like, we, we all like broke our necks to say yes to it or something. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I love the backing vocal on... It's funny, I like the Bowie aspect maybe the most. And I think that's what's really missing on this one is there's a lot of... There's density in the Mott the Hoople version that this one kind of lacks. But like I said, I think Ronson saves the day on this one, enough for me to have to include it on this playlist. Uh, this was one of the ones that you wouldn't have yeah, I, maybe picked. If it's the Mott the Hoople version... It's it fits right in. Right. This first, this was the one that I think I didn't have on my 
the list I had in mind already, but I wasn't going to also put up a fight to kick it off because it's just, it's such a great piece of songwriting. This one is, it's kind of cut from the same cloth as Changes in that it's a song that's maybe not critiquing the old guard super harshly, but it's very much championing the new one. You know, that's evident in the lyrics. You know, there's lines about the older brother being back home with his Beatles and his Stones, yeah. but the young dudes... They've got this new hot tramp aesthetic, and they're taking over. You know, step aside. This is the, the young dude's world now. But I think where this song really trumps changes for me, and is maybe why we didn't include, spoiler alert, uh, changes in our playlist, is that sonically, I think this is just the better anthem. Or at least I think Mott, the Hoople's version is. Yeah. Because, you know, changes has that course, which is very anthemic. But All the Young Dudes is even more grandois. It's more of an explosion, and it also yeah. has that that sort of tough street corner punk energy to it. You know, there isn't as much energy to changes. The verses hold a lot of weight lyrically. He's saying a lot of fantastic stuff, but their presentation makes them come off as like mere placeholders until the chorus kicks in. And, and it's probably because Hunky Door is kind of a more tamer, introspective right. record. Yeah, and, and I, leading up to that chorus too i'm not sure exactly what he does but he, he changes the time signature he adds an extra two or th- three beats or At something the end there yeah and it's just like it makes you just it's want gallop that gallop or something yeah i don't know what it is yeah, yeah. and uh I-, I love the pre-chorus too uh with in this version where ronson is just chugging along and it just he's using the wah in the traditional sense and it just sounds so good the licks that he plays to add a little bit of ambience to it too uh yeah like i said ronson kind of saves the day on this version of it and it's just I, I i felt like we had to represent this song on this playlist and this one just kind of does the the job just good enough to edge out some of the other ones that we did leave off at like changes like yeah and i still believe changes is a great song i just find that all the young dudes brings a little more energy and emotion to the table it's a bigger sound and i i think for that type of song it works a bit better, and especially in the Mott the Hoople version there at the end where Ian Hunter, the lead vocalist, he's, he's like picking people out of a crowd almost. Yeah, hey, you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, hey, how did it feel? I want to hear you. you know, it, it's, it's much more of an uplifting experience. And once again, when we had Michael Fremer on, uh, on our show recently, he talked about how going to a Bowie concert, it felt like more of a religious revival where you left transformed more than it felt like a rock show. And so I, I think it's like songs and moments like this that come to mind. These are the very special types of songs that will leave you feeling that way. Another kind of anti-hippie movement song too, isn't it? Because kind of like never got it off on that revolutionary stuff. Yeah. In other words, like, yeah, it was all like hit too many snags. Like what you, a drag. You, yeah. yeah, like, oh, we were trying to do, and then you kind of just left it. And which is yeah. kind of like what was going on in the early 70s. That movement was was over, right? And uh, in that new Velvet Underground documentary, which just came, have you seen that? I haven't yet. Oh, it's screen. this weekend. I'll probably get around to it. They talk about uh, 
well, the remaining, well, Maureen Tucker specifically is the one that I remember talking about. It. They, they, she mentions how they, they kind of hated the hippie movement too. Mm. You know, they were, I mean, Velvet Underground are very <laughs> kind of anti-hippie group. And yeah. I think they captured that at maybe a little bit more than David. David's kind of more of a damn, he kind of more is explicitly anti-hippie and the Velvet Underground are just, their existence is kind of anti-hippie, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, I think Bowie just had more important things to get to than to really obsess over any one thing for too long anyway. And it makes sense that he's a huge Velvet Underground fan because I think he shares a lot of their, their ideas views, yeah. musically. And yeah, just yeah. The, the whole idea of the Velvet Underground, I think Bowie just, I mean, it had such a profound impact on his songwriting. Stuff like I'm Waiting for the Man and, you know, those songs about like urban sleaze, which pops up in Bowie's songs an awful lot is, you know, that's, that's the Lou Reed ingredient that he sprinkles into his stew or whatever you want to call his <laughs> conglomeration of influences. Yeah. Okay, so the second last song on our playlist is The Gene Genie. I'll give you a good reason as to why this deserved to be on the list. Uh, the top of your head, can you name me a David Bowie song that's more fun to sing than The Gene Genie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this would be up there. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the lines are just great. There's some, you know, cool words, and the way he delivers them are just, I don't know. This is this is the best one to sing. It's a fun, it's, yeah, it's a very fun song. It's it's one where you, you pick up uh, a guitar at a bonfire and start strumming it, and people are going to have fun. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to sing along, and yeah, it's one of the, one of the better rockers. And it's a simple enough, I mean, what is it, E to A? I mean, you, I mean even, even if you're half cut, it shouldn't be hard yeah. to. I've played this song drunk upside down. I'm a left-handed guitar player. I can even pick this one up and yeah, just strum it's... along on a backwards guitar, and you can still pull it off. I, the, you know, the majority of people that I play guitar with are left. I'm right-handed, and normally left hand lefties have trouble you know, they go somewhere and there's right-handed guitars everywhere, but I go places and there's left-handed guitars everywhere. So I've kind of learned to do the opposite too, but I shouldn't be the one having to. It's it's really weird that left-handed guitar is more obscure, whatever you want to call it, or rarer than... It's like shooting left in hockey. It's like 50, or, actually more people shoot left. In, it's closer to 50-50, but it is that more people shoot left. It's like 60-40 or something. Right. Closer to 50-50. Why is it that writing and throwing and guitar so, are yeah. the ones that are like 10, 10 90 or whatever you want to call it. Well, you're One right. Out of every 10. You're right handed, right? Like you write with your right hand, don't you? Yeah. I'm, I'm weird. I write with my right hand. I throw balls with my right hand. I think it's my dominant hand, but then I do everything. Like I play guitar left-handed. I Sports. play sport. Like I shoot yeah. hockey and baseball and golf. I do all that stuff left-handed. I don't even know how yeah. that happens. Yeah. I also hold my pen really funny, so maybe that's... You hold I'm, it kind of like the Simpsons. Yeah, but I always get told I have... The neatest the, the neatest printing. So yeah. I have this theory where it's actually everybody's stupid except me, <laughs> and I'm the only person in the world that holds their pen correctly. Yeah, it'll be interesting if you get like carpal tunnel or arthritis early, but yeah. so far so good, I guess. I mean, it's a 26, so <laughs> I had a good run if not. Okay. You might be able to guess the last song on our playlist. We didn't start the playlist off the way that Ziggy starts, but we're ending it the way that Ziggy ends, and that's with Rock and Roll Suicide. Yeah, this is, I mean, all the way they have to be on here. Come on. I mean, this is, uh, we, we left a couple big ones off, or, you know, like Starman didn't make it, Changes didn't make it, but this one is, 
this one makes it, and it should have, and I'm sure everybody thinks the same way. I think this is arguably like the best song to ever close an album, or maybe ever. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those songs for me that I've never considered it his greatest song of all time, but it's always floating in that vicinity. It's it's around there. It's always like, oh, it's not like, you, you know, it, it's it's in that top ten kind of space. I've never considered it his absolute best, but I've always considered it like absolutely elite. Yeah. And yeah, if if you want to hear, I I have a crazy idea of what this song is that I tried to tackle in the the episode. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it here, but yeah, I, I absolutely love the the image that he that he puts in my head uh, in a way that you know Bob Dylan does in Tambourine Man or in other stuff. Like it's he lyrically this is just incredible and the music is great too it's kind of almost like uh Bule brothers in that it's another one of those great songs to kind of play at the end of the night when you maybe had a few drinks he's kind of got this raspy drawl in his voice on this one and it's like i don't even know what you would call it it's like uplifting gutter music if such a thing even exists uh, <laughs> uplifting gutter music cuz you know, at first it sounds like you're in the slums <laughs> but then it just explodes and you wind up feeling like you're not alone. I mean, I don't know. This is a very special song. One that, yeah, one that was made. Uh, I think Angie is one that stoked it in his brain to kind of write one that's going to really resonate with your audience. This one does exactly that. Yeah, it makes you feel. It, it make like it feels like he's singing to you personally, and that probably sounds cliche, but it, it really does. He just has a, a, such a great way of connecting with you. And I think this is maybe the most glaring and best example of, of him doing that. Yeah. So there you have it. That's our Best of the Spiders playlist. Uh, 20 songs. We could have expanded it more, but we only jumped from 14 on our last playlist to 20 on this one. I mean, I think if we would have expanded it past this, it would have been just a bit too, like, oh. Like you have to you, keep you, so you put everything on. You have right? to keep it prestigious, I think. Right? Yeah. You say more when you have less, or when you say less, kind of. Mm-hmm. As we continue to talk for hours on end about Bowie, I think we kept it as compact as possible, without leaving too much off. And we also we, we hit the sweet spot, I think. And we live. We didn't the, add too much. We either. live in the streaming age where it can get really long. Mm-hmm. So we. Yeah, I'm glad we at least kept it to an hour twenty. That's it's not crazy. It's. Uh, yeah, send, we'd like to hear. We'd like to see your list too. If you want to, you know, reply back to us on Twitter with yours. We love seeing everyone's list because Bowie is such a unique artist, and there's so many different songs that you know his lists are very seldom going to look the same. I'm there, sure there's going to be a, a, a huge variety of, yeah. of different uh, people who see this list differently than us. So don't don't yell at us for the ones that we left off. Just just show us yours because we we'd love uh, to hear from you as well i'm looking forward to that um i'm also looking forward to find out finding out what your favorite album is from this era uh we'll we'll start with the listeners we we asked this question yesterday uh we got 66 votes and we have a winner uh with 44 percent of the vote share ziggy stardust uh is the number one liked album or as chosen as a favorite 
the most. Uh, coming in second was Hunky Dory with 24%, Aladdin Sane, 18%, and The Man Who Sold the World at 14%. We can only include four, so we didn't have pinups in there, but there were no write-in votes. I didn't think that that would get one. Anyway. I mentioned before we started this that I wasn't sure what my favorite from this era was yet and that I would make my mind up now. Mm-hmm. I think despite wanting to pick something else, I, 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 I've I tried to talk myself out of it, but I, I, I think Ziggy is still my favorite album from this era. It, it's very close between that and Hunky Dory. Uh, but when I try to, when I compare the tracks and I go, Oh, which one, it just something about Ziggy just still does it for me after all these years. I think it's still number one from, you know, the Ronson spiders. era. This this is tough. Uh, So I think this is one of those questions where it's going to, the answer is going to change depending on what day it is. That's and that's fair. Yeah, that's that's true. Today, I mean, I'm looking at these four, and I'm just... I think I'm going to go hunky-dory. Okay. I'm not... Yeah, I'm not... That's uh, not surprising. I, I, I uh, thought you were like, going to say that. Uh, but then it's like Ziggy and Aladdin Sane are like right there, though. Yeah, they, like, are, they... Oh, this is so close. Yeah. And I also don't want to slight the man who sold the world, but... It, no, it's just it, not it quite. Is, it, it's a tier below these. It those, is. those three. Yeah, it is. And pinups is a couple tiers below the man who sold the world. But I, I think I'm I'm gonna roll with Hunky Dory here. Um, not an easy choice. The the hardest choice that I've had to make in a while. I think for you, it's the the how much you like fill your heart. Probably, and you like uh, "Song for Bob" a lot more than than I did too. Yeah, I think I like at least just like that one, where yeah. you kind of don't and, and I changes, also, I mean, I, it, which I don't really care for, and you you don't mind or you think it's. Good I, I think "Changes" is a good song, and yeah. I also like all the filler ones, like you said, "Fill Your Heart," and also Eight Line Poem." I also oh, yeah. really like. Yeah. You know, and that's not really like his greatest song, or it's not a great piece of songwriting, but it, it's a great atmosphere, and it works perfectly in that little medley between "Pretty Things" and "Life on Mars." That's like. That's such a great run of songs, right? Pretty Things, Eight Line Poem, Life on Mars. I love the way those flow. And then Kooks is, is a great little silly thing, and Quicksand falls. You know, I think I'm going to go Hunky Dory here. Yeah. I think the lulls on Hunky Dory aren't as big as they are for me, maybe, on the other records where, you know, I'm not a huge fan of It Ain't Easy. I'm well, that's the worst hum- song of the two albums, for sure. I'm not a huge, which is funny because it was for recorded me. for Hunky Dory. Yeah, <laughs> hey, there you go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest soul love guy. Um, yeah, that's where I think we differ a bit, is I love soul love. That's think- one of my favorites on the album. Well, it's <laughs> it's in the middle of the pack, I guess, but it, I, it's a great song. Aladdin Sane has pretty a star, which I'm not a huge fan of. I think I'm gonna go, and I also just love the the mood of Hunky Dory. It's I don't know, I'm going Hunky Dory okay. today, but you know when we wrap this up in a year or whatever it is, and we do our favorite albums, like, who knows? It might even be below Aladdin, <laughs> Saint, and Ziggy. But as of today, I'm picking Hunky Dory this, as my favorite record from the Spiders from Mars era. Yeah, that it was harder for me to pick Ziggy over Hunky Dory. I think than it was to make this playlist, surprisingly. It was harder for me to, to make this decision than it was. Yes, which I agree. Is, yeah. I, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. I thought it would have been like, oh yeah, Ziggy, but no, the, 
yeah, hearing you talk so much about what's great about Hunky Dory is making me, but no, I'm putting my, planting my flag, I'm picking Ziggy. And yeah, like, these are obviously endorsements of the albums that we're picking, not indictments on right. the ones we aren't exactly. picking. And everyone knows that, because they're all, all four of the, the options there are great. One song that I think deserves just mentioning, because we won't really have... Well, there might be one other spot where we can talk about a different version of it, but that's John I'm Only Dancing, which was a single yeah. uh, from the era, just bef- between Ziggy and Aladdin Sane. There's multiple versions of this one, and the original single version is my least favorite of all three, actually. I, I prefer, my favorite sax is the, the sax version yeah. is my favorite. It just, it gives it a bit more density. It's a bit it, it just yeah whatever it's whatever the original one is lacking the sax version gives it it's the saxophones that makes it better to me and then there's the the real disco-y kind of funk one john i'm only dancing again, again yeah and i like that one a lot too and that one's totally reworked not just you know some saxophones thrown on it but i, I really like that version too that one comes a bit later the yeah, sax it would be like a different era yeah right? that would yeah the the sax version was recorded i think in 73 yeah because with Ken Fordham, I believe, right, on the sax. He's the guy who played on pinups and, right. and Aladdin scene. Yep. What's interesting about the non-album tracks from this period is that I, I always think of them as on par with the songs from the albums. You know, like this and Holy Holy, Velvet Goldmine, Sweethead, Round and Round. I, I think they're all not even just competent, but they're, they're great songs. Yeah. But I, I wasn't really ever ecstatic or, or thrilled when I discovered them for the first time. You know, I'd heard all the albums first and, you know, then eventually one day, you know, I got around to the bonus tracks and I was like, oh yeah, you know, this is cool. You know, another cool one that I hadn't heard before, but they never blew me away. And I think that's a testament to why David kind of had to sack the spiders from Mars. He obviously could have gone about it a lot more professionally, but I think staying in that lane any longer would have created like this logjam of redundant records. Yeah. You know, John, I'm only dancing yeah. is great, but what is it? Okay, it's another androgynous kind of you know bisexual anthem. It has an Eddie Cochran riff played by Mick Ronson. It's got some cool feedback, but it's like, haven't I heard all this before? Yeah. And so if he didn't follow this up with you know Diamond Dogs and, and Young Americans and all the great innovative stuff that followed, he wouldn't be. David Bowie, would he? He would nope. kind of just have been Ziggy forever. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what I see what you mean with that. Another thing I do like about that song is uh, Woody is using mallets to get that huge honking drum sound. Okay, yeah, he's using yeah. mallets. Uh, just it's the only note I wrote down for this episode. Don't forget the mallets. <laughs> Don't forget the mallet. I didn't even know. I was wondering what he was doing. Yeah, like kind of. It sounds kind of like "Be My Baby," the you know the big, the the Spectre yeah. produced, but yeah. Yeah, I, I know what you mean about that, in that uh, when you discover these non-album singles, like, oh, a single from that era that I haven't heard, and you put it on, it's like, oh. Like, when I first heard Holy Holy, it was like, oh, my God, like, this exists? Like, another song yeah. from the Ziggy era that I, and then you listen to it, and it's like, okay, yeah, that's... That's it's great. You're not blown away, but you're like, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. One one that did do that uh, was uh, Absolute Beginners, which is a great song, uh, much, you know, a decade later, but that was one where when I heard it, it was like, Oh my God, I have a new favorite Bowie song of the week or whatever when I first heard it. And I, you don't quite get that with these ones. 
Yeah, one that is a lot different from this era that I love is uh, his cover of Jacques Brel's Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, that one's really good. And that one is, it's really different, right? Um, that was the one that stuck out when I first, when the BBC thing came out. That was when I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I remember really, really liking that one. The The Live at the BBC compilation had that on it. Yeah. I, the studio version was what, recorded in 71 or something uh, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I view it, even though it's a few years later, I kind of view it as almost like a diamond dog stepping stone because it has this very dark and ominous atmosphere. And it's around this time that Bowie, I think, really begins to draw heavily from Scott Walker's vocal inflection. I mean, that's where he got the idea to do the song. It was on uh, Scott Walker 1. And, like, especially around pinups and certainly on diamond dogs, you know, it's it's this very sort of deep and very grotesque style of, like, balladeering and it kind of becomes his signature voice that he'll use, like really for like the rest of his career. He kind of develops this deeper, yeah, this deeper voice. Yeah, yeah, the Bowie voice. Yeah. You ever see that? Uh, I think it was Conan O'Brien was interviewing him uh, shortly after. I guess uh, his daughter was born, Alex- Alexandra, Alexandria. I'm mm-hmm. not, yeah. Anyway, he was he asked, Conan. I think it was Conan asked him. Uh, so when you sing like lullabies. Do you sing it in your David Bowie voice, or do you just like sing it like you know normal people do? Anthony Newley. Or so he sang like I can't remember what he sang, but he did it in his Bowie voice. You're talking about your your daughter. Do you sing lullabies? Yeah, I sing well more nursery rhymes. Nursery know? rhymes. Yeah. Do you do it in that David Bowie style or? No, but I could do, couldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> it's cool if you went into a room at night with a microphone and you were just doing. Hickory dickory dock. <laughs> Do I see this one through? The mouse ran up the clock. (laughs) The clock struck one. (laughs) The mouse ran down. Hickory dickory. (laughs) I also think Bowie drew from Scott Walker's deceptiveness. Like, if you play any of those first four self-titled Scott Walker records... Initially, it might just sound like Sinatra, you know, crooning over orchestral arrangements. But once you start to pay attention a bit more and really examine and, and dig through the underbelly, you see that optimism kind of clashing with, like, anguish and, and decadence. You know, the closer you pay attention, the more eerie it all gets. And I think the same can be said about a lot of Bowie's work. You know, Oh You Pretty Things is a very deceptive song. The lyrics don't quite match the music. Or maybe a better example would be something like Lady Grinning's Soul. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say With, Lady Grinning's Soul. on the surface, that song's kind of very romantic. Yeah. But it's simultaneously very haunting, you know. Yeah. Things aren't always what they seem in a lot of Bowie's work. There's that dark, twisted, and ugly cloud kind of lurking within and even if it's not at the forefront, it's always there lurking. And I think that's the Scott Walker ingredient that's in that Bowie stew, once again, or whatever, the, the conglomeration of influences. That's the Scott Walker kind of coming out of him. I'm going to have to do a, a, a dive into into Scott Walker. I've, the only one I've really listened to is the, well, the Walker Brothers uh, Night Flights album, just because of I, I love Bowie's cover of Night Flights mm-hmm. so much that I... You know, I got into that album a little bit. I know, well, you you bought a copy of it, and yeah, that the first half of that album yeah, is just... because the first um, half is the Scott Walker songs. The first four okay, are yeah. Scott... And, and, and that's the best. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what probably made Bowie's work with 
from this period with the spiders from Mars so special is well for, for on a track like Amsterdam it's just all Scott Walker all Jacques Brel Bowie kind of just sounds like them but when you take that eerie deceptiveness of a Scott Walker and you pair it with this hard fast rock and roll that's kind of Bowie's defining sound in this spiders period it's rock and roll and anybody can play rock and roll but can they execute that twist that that he puts on it that's probably the separator, or at least one of the biggest separators between what makes Bowie's rock and roll so much better than just rock and roll. And I think the rock and roll was necessary at this stage of his career in order to to make it as a as a rock and roll star. He kind of needed to get famous. He needed first, to before yeah. he could get into the Berlin trilogy. He couldn't just. I, yeah. I don't think he could have just come out and done that at I, the beginning. He kind of needed to be a rock star in order to do the things he needed to do. And it's not that he didn't want to do a lot of this stuff. But once it was proven that he worked, or, or that it worked, and that he had made it, it, it was kind of like, okay, let's just shut it down entirely, and let's see where we can go from here. And it might How, be why he kind of just shut it down so abruptly. It was like, all right, I did it. Now now yeah. let's get on with, you know, right. now I'm really, now, now he, we're really cooking. He has said that, like, it's, it's documented that he wanted to be a star, too. Like, he was early as even he was on that TV thing with right. like the long hair. Yeah. And, oh, I'm tired of getting called dark. It was kind of lame. But. but not only that, but like it, in order to to make the kind of music that he aspired to make, like how else are you going to get these great musicians to collaborate with mm-hmm. if, if you're not somebody? Like if, if I just go up to Brian Eno and say, hey, you want to like make some crazy music and put it under my name? And like, he's, you know, I'm not going to get a he's not going to pick up the phone. Well, the reason Ken Scott infamously, not infamously, the reason like worked <laughs> right, was because yeah. he, okay, I'll work with him because I'm a kind of a nobody. I'm dipping my feet into the production uh, waters for the first time. Let's do it on this nobody's record, David Bowie. That way nobody will notice if yeah. I screw up. So yeah. that's who you get, you know, when you're a nobody, right? And not that Ken Scott's has become a legend since, but it, it started yeah. here. Well, and he, he had the pedigree coming from the Beatles engineer. Yeah, just room, as an engineer, but, not but, as a producer. Yeah, as a producer, he hadn't really produced anything yet. So, so that's who he's getting without being famous is he's getting the guys that, Oh, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll work here. Cause if I, I cut, ta- I cut notice. tape for, <laughs> for George Martin, not like George Martin. Because George Martin turned him down. That's yeah. Cause George Martin was going to, when Visconti wouldn't do space oddity, wouldn't produce it. They were going to try to give it to George Martin. I think yeah. he didn't want to do it either. And then it eventually went to Gus, Gus Dudgeon. Yeah. All right. So that, that does it. We're through with the, the Ziggy era or the spiders era. We've, as we've decided to, to dub it. Um, any th- closing thoughts on the, on the era? Well, it, it's going to be sad. I think to close a chapter on the three names that we've mentioned I mean, I guess we'll, we'll mention Ronson again very briefly on, on Black Tie, White Noise, but I'm going to kind of miss talking about those guys because, you know, yeah. Spiders from Mars were a great group. Yeah. I think, you know, Ronson was the yin to, you know, to David's yang. He was the, he was this salt of the earth type, you know, a masculine and kind of more traditional man. He was a blunt northerner, which is the perfect match for an androgynous character like Ziggy. Yeah. And I think most partnerships need that, someone to be the polar opposite there's that famous example of the Beatles recording Getting Better from Sgt. Pepper. Yeah. You know, Paul was always more diplomatic and optimistic, so he's singing about how it's getting so much better all the time. And then, then John comes in. With the pessimistic. Can't get much worse. Yeah. yeah. The, the best duos, I think, kind of need that duality. So, you know, Ronson was, was, per, he was the perfect pair for, for Bowie in this period. Yeah. 
I'm going to just miss talking about his guitar. Like that's like, yeah, I'm going to, it's yeah. I can't believe we're through the Ronson era already. This is going way too fast. Uh, and, and Trevor and, and Woody and, you know, like they, they were just a solid, solid crew. Uh, Ken Scott, this will be it for him. And yeah, it, he was, I think he was exactly what Bowie needed at the time. Mm-hmm. He, he was able to capture what Bowie was doing in, in a very fast, <laughs> in a very quick, quick way too. Didn't have much time. Didn't have many takes. I, I wonder if his job was easy. I mean, I know the Beatles did a lot of takes on a lot of their songs, and then he comes in like, oh, this is a lot easier than I anticipated. Yeah, probably. If if the best are, are taking this long, this guy's surely going to take, you know, a lot longer, but it was quite the opposite. He wound up working with a lot of people after David, right? Like, he, he winds up working with, well, let's see here. Let's pull it up. Elton, well, he'd always worked with Elton John, but he worked with Jeff Beck, Duran Duran, uh, Devo. No, I didn't know he worked with Devo. Yeah, he did one of the, what album is it? It's uh, Duty for the Future. I actually own that record. No. Oh. Their second one. It's a good one. I he, only really know the first one. Like, I, I know the other ones, and I know, like, the, the singles from them, but the, the first one, the first Devo album is, is that's the... That's my, yeah, it's... It's the album. They're more kind of, like, post-punk one the ones after that are kind of a little a little more synthy uh but i i yeah, I, I would agree that that devo's first record is their most essential ronson also kind of uh lands on his feet too he did have yeah. a bit of a failed solo career there but he went on to you know play with mott the hoople at the tail end of their career and eventually just ian hunter he played on tour with Dylan in the mid '70s. Yeah, and produced I, a record for Morrissey. I've I've got to just talk about that briefly too. Uh, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan, and I I have a hot take. My favorite album of his is Desire, which Ronson doesn't play on, uh, but he played on the tour that followed yeah. the Rolling Thunder review. And if if anybody out there hasn't heard uh, that tour, it is it's Dylan at his absolute finest, in in my opinion, and. You can hear the, the the Ronson influence, especially on. Uh... Where have you been, my blue son? Where have you been, my darling young wife? I on the side of twelve misty mountains. Trevor and Woody they fade into obscurity a bit more than Ronson. Uh, they actually released an album as. Spiders from Mars, right, called yeah. the Spiders from Mars. I've, I've never, I've never listened to it. I haven't either. Apparently, there's one, and I think it's near the, it's on the second half of the album. One that Trevor wrote, which apparently is pretty decent, which we'll maybe have to, uh, we'll maybe have to to get into. But kind of like how the Crickets made an album post Buddy Holly. Yeah. The Don't Ever Change was on there. Yeah, that's the one that the Beatles did. And that's and a great, it's a great song. Brian Ferry did that on his cover album too. I think. Right? Oh wow! Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Boulder did play with uh, what's that? Is Uriah Heap? I think no, is the name of them. them. No, he, he played I don't know with them. them. Or I'm not saying no, he didn't. I'm saying I don't know. Them. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> well, they're like a hard rock slash progressive rock group. I'm not familiar with their stuff, but I I know they have like this slew of critically acclaimed records. But I think all of them came out basically before Trevor Boulder entered the group. But he, he carved out a nice little career with them, nonetheless. And Woody, I guess, didn't do too much. I think he had his own group called the U-Boat or something, but the thing that he's done that I'm a bit more familiar with is he formed the super group Holy Holy with Tony Visconti. Yeah. They're yeah. essentially like this tribute band that does mostly 
material from the man who sold the world, but a handful of other stuff I think from from Bowie's seventies catalog as well. Yeah, I found them on YouTube down at a rabbit hole night once. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's sad because you know these guys are it was a it was a cool tight knit group he had there for a while, and you know obviously the relationship soured, and uh, you know things didn't didn't quite end as as nicely as they could have. This isn't a happy ending, but. We have a great collection of stuff to look back at. Hopefully this playlist does this era justice. I think it will. And yeah, I think we're, unless you had anything to add, I believe we're signing off. That's it. So yeah, this is the end of our unofficial season two. Uh, We'll be picking up with the beginning of season three. So we'll catch you next time. Uh, In the meantime, have a happy Halloween as we get into uh, Halloween Jack, the next character that we get from Bowie. Uh, I, I imagine this al- this episode will come out right around Halloween time. We're we're about three days out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, that's it for the spiders. Signing off. I'm Jesse, and I'm John. <laughs>